with you? What's your price? To call off the revolution? My life. And we're back. Order in the court. This is Mike, Mike, and Oscar coming to you for another Oscar Sprint Profile, one of the headliners, one of the big movies on the slate for the 2020 award season is Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7, which is going to drop on Netflix within the coming days. We were lucky enough to get our hands on it early, and we will give you a full breakdown and spoiler slash non-spoiler review. I am your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host also Mike. And we got to get right down to business. Mike, we can't have any shenanigans like at the beginning of this trial. <laughs> so I want to catch the audience up on the stories that we have covered here on MMO uh, in conjunction with this release, the trial of the Chicago 7, because uh, I think we got to tease some questions that we'll have to reckon with for the rest of this episode and perhaps for the rest of award season. Now, if this was akin to the procedure that Sorkin shows on the, the court procedure that Sorkin shows on screen, uh, I would do the equivalent of riding through this recording in a tricycle with a honking nose like a clown. <laughs> yeah, you're uh, a lawyer. Let's get that out there for the folks right now. And, you know, however much these this film is be- based on transcripts, you're going to call B.S., Many a times <laughs> in, in this episode, I, for good reason. I fear I'm going, this is one of those things I'm going to get loud, but you're right. We have a lot of stuff to cover, so let's get into it. Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7 sold, as basically every film does that Paramount has anymore, sold from Paramount to Netflix for $56 million. A fairly cheap price, and the question rises that... Uh, did Paramount make a mistake? Do they come to regret this decision? Does this become an Oscar nomination juggernaut? And on the flip side of that, is this one of the wisest purchases Netflix has ever spent uh, on content? I mean, thinking about what they spent last year with the Irishman, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, here you got a $56 million, fairly reasonable yeah. sum, and you might have a multi-nomination contender here. And there's all kinds of questions about if studios are going to take note about what Paramount is doing. That's obviously stuff we'll cover in upcoming ORCs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Paramount, for all the strife and the lack of revenue every studio has faced during this pandemic and quarantine, Paramount has kind of led the charge in terms of taking already done movies in the tin and selling them off to the streaming service to keep hundreds of millions of dollars coming in. So we're going to see if anyone ends up following suit. Now, when we reviewed the first trailer for this movie... There was that pundit parade of making this movie the front runner for Best Picture. So we got to ask the questions throughout this review. You know, you, were you and I too harsh on film Twitter a few weeks ago? I mean, were they simply saying that this is the best film we've gotten thus far, and hence it is a front runner by the sheer definition of the word? Or, or were we correct from the beginning, as we always are? <laughs> <laughs> Could be either way there. I mean, we gotta we gotta really break that down in this episode, and it, it's a it's a bigger question than it would seem. So, uh, we went twenty minutes on it last time. We're gonna try not to beat the drum this entire episode, but it is there. Uh, look, I saw this movie in theaters a couple weeks ago, and I cruelly teased everyone yes. that I felt like this was very best picturey, but it was just going to be good enough for you and I to hate it, Michael. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we, we have teased this. This is a big episode for us. Are we presenting a future best picture winner here? And if so, are we going to practice the cultural revolution that the film preaches <laughs> by continuing to hate it? So despite your tone in reading my copy, <laughs> I genuinely don't know what's going to happen here. What I do know 
is that the trial of the Chicago 7 is hitting Netflix today on October 16th. So we want to thank Netflix for letting us study this movie early, which we did watch it a couple yes. times. Uh, we want to tell people to click play on this. I think it's an important movie as well. Yeah, but again, after we record today, what happens on Film Twitter this weekend? That's going to be up to, obviously, you, dear listener, everyone in the Film Twitter sphere. Does the film get a backlash? Does it get a moment? Or do we, as we usually do for our opinions, get a backlash ourselves as mics? As it stands, The Trial of the Chicago 7 has a 76 meta score and a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. Those are best picture numbers. 117 reviews total as of Friday when we're releasing this. We have an early audience score of 7.6 on IMDb. I'm sure that will fluctuate one way or the other because that's a very early score. The 7.5, that low mid-7s, I could see that one settling on by the time everyone's done uh, mm-hmm. giving it a 1 and giving it a 10, you know? Uh, let's talk <laughs> about the plot premise as it reads on IMDb. The story of seven people on trial stemming from various charges surrounding the uprising at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. For those of you who didn't know, that is in Illinois. So, we got to get into our expectations. For me, it was a rewatch. And, Mike, I figured I disliked this movie more upon rewatch. The opposite kind of happened for me. It, it kind of mm-hmm. held its grade, but I was able to appreciate a lot of the production values. I was able to appreciate a lot of the craft involved here. And I think, yeah, like I said, it's very best picturey. But I also want to qualify that statement throughout this review. Let's get into your expectations, though. Coming from the place where I just was a cruel tease, what did you think going into this? Uh, Yeah, I was guarded based on what you said and based on our reaction to the trailer. I will say, and I said this to you before we hit record, I don't think the film was as egregious as I was worried about. Okay, good. That's not to say it wasn't egregious and, <laughs> and fairly egregious, right? So I was very defense defended about that and very guarded. Um, but like you, and we've talked about here a bunch of times, I'm a big Sorkin guy. Right. I don't think there's a better dialogue writer in the entire industry. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Steve Jobs, a huge fan of A Few Good Men. You can go down his filmography. We've talked about it pretty much ad nauseum a bunch. So I was guarded but excited to see what he had in store here the melodic rhythms of an aaron sorkin script really shine in this movie i think his pacing is very best picturey and i think that's the best qualifier i can give i do think that the academy loves an easy to watch movie a a perfectly paced movie in their best picture winner's circle mike i think this has been the case the last few years say what you want about parasite i think it really had narrative momentum say what you want about the shape of water green book i mean the words we used about those movies are polished and and mm-hmm. using all the co- conventions of a good Hollywood movie to the nth degree. And I don't know about you, but when I walk away from this movie, even after three watches, I'm like, that feels like a best picture. Like my antennas go up, at least for a nomination, right? Well, I don't even think you have to wait until the end. Like, what Sorkin does so extremely well, you could talk about this being in the script, you could mm-hmm. talk about this being in the Oscars lens, which I guess we're going to weave throughout the uh, non-spoiler section here anyway, like we usually do in the OSPs, but in the fr- I-, I had to hit pause, because in the first 725 of this movie, yeah. right, Sorkin's able to do what a lot of auteurs take their first two acts to do. We have <laughs> the main players, the motivations, the stakes, and the constitution of every character, and the kind of conflict of ideologue between ideology between all the main players as well. 
That happens in seven minutes and 25 seconds, right? I mean, that's it's beautiful. So it sucks you right in and you're immediately invested into what's going on here. And I agree with you. I think that's that's candy for the Academy. Halloween 4 takes a seven-minute elevator ride <laughs> and just explains it all to you. In this right. movie, you get this pristine, gorgeous you know, beautiful, hilarious montage where you meet yeah. every one of the characters where it's it's been lauded throughout film Twitter, throughout every review I've listened to. The editing of this flows so well. And then it, so good. It, it works into the big set piece, dramatic, theatrical scenes, which Sorkin's been writing from the beginning of his career. I mean, you have those... Those, those big A Few Good Men type uh, arguments right. at, at certain times. You have the walking and talking West Wing scenes. Do you necessarily have, you know, the social network kind of self-criticism? We'll get into some of that. You have some self-criticism, self-reflection here about politics, about, about certain things. I don't necessarily know if the characters in this story are as dimensional as a Steve Jobs or as a, whoever the founder of Facebook I'm forgetting his real name. Mark Zuckerberg. Thank you, Mark Zuckerberg. Do, do you Jesse have Eisenberg made Facebook. Yes. Right. <laughs> Jesse Eisenberg <laughs> is the guy I think about when I think about Facebook, though. That movie was that important. Is it mm-hmm. on that level? I don't know. But look, I mean, you said it. Aaron Sorkin is responsible for some of my favorite movies and TV shows of all time. And it's hard to watch this movie and not get won over especially right. upon rewatch to all of the things I've loved about his entire career. So I've softened my stance a bit overall. I'm really curious how film Twitter is going to take this, you know, are they going to annoy us even more after this weekend or we're going <laughs> to join the parade? At least may, are, are we going to watch the parade from the rafters and just nod our head and maybe just sit down and, and have a drink? I feel like I'm being as apologetic and as nice as I possibly can be to start because I feel like when we dive into spoilers, <laughs> all I'm going to do is yell and pull my hair out. So, I, I, yes, is the qu- answer to your question. I think we're going to end up annoyed because I j- for all the reasons we cited, this one, as much as we may not feel it is, I think it's at least cosplaying as a serious Oscar contender. And when you add in the fact that 2020 has been what it's been for movies, it's going to end up with noms. Well, let's tease one of my biggest riffs, though, with this story and one of the biggest problems I still have with this story. And it's the subject slash focus of the film. It's the main plot versus the subplot. I mean, the Bobby Seal, Black Panther, Fred Hampton subplot in this story is much, much more important in terms of stakes, in terms yeah. of the dialogue <laughs> that Aaron Sorkin gives to it and the, and the deference he gives to it from the white characters in the movie. All that being said, and the, aside from the punditry, what you have is a subplot. <laughs> That's it. I, I mean, he, re- he knowingly recognizes that it's more important than this trial of the Chicago 7, and yet the Chicago 8th, is is just pushed aside to that subplot. It's what does that do handling... to this movie? That's the thing. It doesn't detract from the movie. I'm wrestling with that fact right now. Yeah, it, it does. It's well, it's not. It's that in combination with a couple other factors because there's so many people on screen in this movie. Yeah, like, like between extras, cops, and protesters, and blah blah. And there's so few people of color. Right. So few. And when you have two main characters. The Bobby Seale character and the Fred Hampton character. Those are basically your two main characters that are people of color. When you know you're not going to 
treat their storyline as anything more than a subplot, right? And and it gets even worse when you talk about the specifics of it, which I won't do in the non-spoiler section here. But when you know you're going to do what's going to happen with those characters, it's even more egregious and more offensive, the lack of representation that's in this movie, especially when you take into account that there's so many extras on screen at all times. So the question I have at the end of the day, though, is by admitting the fact that the subplot's more important than the main plot. In the movie! He specifically states in the movie, we'll go over it in spoilers in a, a media carryover scene, but he specifically states in this movie, and I don't think that's a spoiler really, that obviously Bobby Seal is going through more shit than these guys who have daddy mm. issues. <laughs> is that, however, the point of the movie? Is this a film about privileged people who need to stand up for the underprivileged and for the abused in society. After all, the film is about anti-Vietnam War protesters. And I wonder if that's the entire point of the film. And I wonder if Sorkin's kind of arguing away the obvious objection that you and I have going into this movie and with the problem of the pundit parades. He handles it I mean, if you want to, if this is the story you want to tell, if the the trial itself is the story you want to tell, which is the movie, yeah, I, I guess you can't really do anything else, right? Like you you can only handle it in the way he kind of handled it, which is he is acknowledging of it, like you said, he's respectful towards it. I guess the question has to be asked: Is that is this story necessary to be told at all? If right. that's what you have to kind of minimalize into a subplot of the movie. It, like, can you pay it enough deference? Does it matter that you're acknowledging that it's bigger than the plot? Which is the question you're asking, which is going to be independent for each and every viewer of this to weigh. Yeah, I, I think that ultimately is what everybody's going to be wrestling with. And maybe that's a good thing at the yeah. end of the day, if that's where the conversation goes. If that's not where the conversation goes, and everybody just hails this up as a one-to-one right. comparison. that's the problem we're going to have. That's times. what we're very worried about. That's a very big problem, though, Michael, right. because that's a double-edged sword, and we'll get into it in spoilers for certain. But, look, the reason you turn this movie on is because of all the Oscar-winning, Oscar-nominated performances. So I'd like to get into performances for you know a, a segment here. Number one... Who's the lead? Is it Eddie Redmayne? In fact, Eddie Redmayne, who's your lead? I would I wouldn't have one. I, I I was thinking about this the whole time. If I'm this if I'm Netflix, knowing that lead actor is shaping up to be what lead actor looks like, why wouldn't you push this for supporting and just pick your guy? Yeah. And that's another problem. There's only guys, but pick your guy and have that be the supporting representation. But I guess if, you know, gun to my head, I would say the lead. I, I guess I'll say Redmayne because I think Rylance has the best chance at an Oscar and I want him to go supporting. Pundits seem to think it's Redmayne. And if you look at all the lists, he's in the lead actor category as of now. The The, the bigger question might be, where does Chadwick Boseman go for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom? Yeah. Where I think the buzz is absurdly strong. Like if you look at top five lists i mean yeah. he is a top top five list in supporting actor he is a top top five list in best actor for the same performance wherever he goes there's going to be a strong and understandable urge and i don't think i don't think it's it's wrong to have that urge to, no. to vote him no. as a winner a posthumous winner and pay tribute to that man's career if anybody deserves that tribute yeah. all things being equal or even being close 
Chadwick Boseman deserves that tribute. So I wonder if Netflix is going to posture off of that. Now, Eddie Redmayne, do you rank him ahead of the other Chicago six plus the lawyer? Seven, I guess. Eight. I mean, where do you rank him on your overall performance list? In terms of performances in this movie, he's not in my top three. Okay, so that's the same for me. So I would sacrifice him in lead actor if I if I thought Bozeman was going lead actor. But if Bozeman's going supporting, and but and he could do both, obviously for Defy Bloods and and Ma Rainey. I don't necessarily think his performance in Defy Bloods is good enough or obvious enough to where you you have that runaway winner. Well, especially if it's going to all be in Netflix as the Five Bloods was and Ma Rainey is. I mean, I don't think Netflix is going to push him in multiple categories. I think it's going to be, they know he has a great shot at one, so they'll probably pick Bozeman's what they think is most Oscar-like. And I, I... don't think that would be the five bloods but i haven't seen my rainies obviously so we'll see what happens anyway but i agree with you yeah Redmayne, he's in my top three right now but i haven't gotten a lot in best actor thus far lindo's there and we still have hopkins oldman hanks tucci like i said right. bolzman kaluuya i'm hearing some supporting actor buzz for kaluuya i don't i don't know how that's possible after that trailer but maybe some people have seen hmm. it clayton davis hasn't been supporting right now so i was shocked to see it but Maybe that'll be the case. Uh, at the end of the day, Eddie Redmayne's going to get bumped out of lead actors, my guess. So we can move on to the supporting category. And there are a bunch. I think that I have three main ones. And I wonder if you have the same three. I have Sasha Baron Cohen, Yaya Abdul Mateen, the second, and Mark Rylance as my big three in terms of the supporting actors. Do you have anybody else breaking into your big three? Uh, yeah, I, I, I took uh, Mr. Drew Carey show himself. I, I think, <laughs> again, I, I respect the Bobby Seal, the Yaya Abdul-Mateen performance, but it was kind of uh, relegated to, a, to a, a, a minimalized role, which I think is preposterous he's based still, on... Yeah, he still has that one big scene. He does, and he does. I mean, and he's great in it. I'm just furious at the way the film treated it, but, I, you know, we've talked about that already. But John Carroll Lynch, I'm not overly high on the performances as far as getting them multiple nominees. Again, I'm trying to ha- talk out of both sides of my mouth because there's the way I see this movie, and then there's the way I think the Academy is going to see this movie. Mm-hmm. So if it was me, I would say John Carroll Lynch is my number three. I would have Sasha Barrett Cohen two and Mark Rylance my number one. But I don't think the Academy would rank those similarly. And I think Sasha Barrett Cohen would probably be the one that gets the most shine, if not then Rylance. And then I think you're right, Yaya Abdul-Mateen would probably be in that conversation as well. But for me personally, I would take out Yaya Abdul-Mateen and I would have uh, John Carroll Lynch as my number three. Yeah, I have Rylance, Baron Cohen, and then Mateen. But I think the way the Academy's ranking it right now, uh, at least in the terms of the punditry perception lens, is Sasha Baron Cohen is the best chance right. for a supporting actor nomination at this moment. And everybody's a chameleon in this, honestly. I mean, Eddie Redmayne, that, that, that character is nothing like any of his others. And Sasha Baron Cohen, even though he's kind of a goofball like his other characters, I do think he's got charisma to burn. I do think he's got this kind of appeal where you want to party with this guy and where you're really rooting for this guy. And then when you see how heroic he is, like you're just in awe of, mm-hmm. of a person like uh, Abby Hoffman, uh, the, the, the real person that is. And Yaya Abdul-Mateen, Bobby Seal, those few big scenes are that powerful. It's, it's Absolutely. You know, he's coming off that uh, Watchmen Emmy win. Does that give him that uh, that boost into this award season? I mean, we just saw in Supporting Actress last year with Laura Dern 
a performance that wasn't all that showy, that was just really an actor's acting performance. And we, I think we got those in this film with Rylance and with Mateen there. Maybe well, that I'll tell you. I'll enough. tell you what would what would annoy me about Mateen, honestly, is that because it was so good and it was so powerful and the story is so important, I, I feel like you know christening that as oh oh my god it was so wonderful it, it's kind of robbing it of its moment that's that's how i feel about it like i want more i feel like it yeah. should have been given more so i think if we're going to like nominate it and say great job for what it is i think that's kind of giving praise to something that is a little bit of a disappointment to me like I, the story itself but also the performance he's got one scene where right. he kind of unleashes some emotion because his character is really forced to hold it back right. for most of the film and they really don't feature him as much as they should, like you're saying. I think the the performance is kind of, we've seen the Academy shy away from the stoic and reserved performance, and that certainly is what he is. The point I'm trying to make on top of that is that I think there's a danger in saying this is a worthy performance when the movie treats the storyline the way it does. I, I would agree. I, it's not enough, most likely. Yeah. And, you know, are we going to be upset if he gets nominated? No, I think he's no, a great actor. No, I think right. he's been he's had a great year. I can't wait till Candyman and go Yaya Abdul Mateen. I think he's the third strongest in this film, which probably has twenty really strong performances. Right. So that's yeah. awesome. I mean, give him his own goddamn movie, please. I mean, it's right. exactly. like like good good for the actor. What the fuck was Aaron Sorkin doing with this storyline? Is kind of where I'm at. Aaron Sorkin admits what he was doing with the storyline. Right. We'll I know. It. I know. It's it's what can you do? I I agree. Mark Rylance has the most nuanced performance. He's the true pros pro. His acting is that next level where he's just crinkling the eyes. He's got a wrinkled face. He doesn't do the Botox. All the wrinkles <laughs> are working for him in this, and he's getting railroaded in this movie by this kangaroo court. So he's this most patient man in America. Then he has his outbursts he's like this audience conduit slash surrogate where he has to discover what's actually happening in the flashbacks when the audience discover it so we're relating to this lawyer i do think if mark rylance hadn't won before he would be the the obvious guy here but because he won before maybe he's that second nomination that that's is most likely to squeak in along with baron cohen if he truly is you know what the academy's gonna you know latch on to i mean to me watching this movie he was the guy the whole time that i got the most oscar or awardsy vibes from the mm-hmm. entire time i mean even with sasha baron cohen doing what he's doing to me i, I was drawn to rylance i thought his performance was the most nuanced i thought he was the most up against it and he had to actually have kind of maybe not the most restrained because we just talked about what bobby seal the bobby seal character how he had to be uh have that kind of restraint in his own character but Rylance is right there uh, if not first he's second in that until he finally boils over and blows up so I thought he was doing the most and I, I just was absolutely drawn to everything he was doing and I'm with you about John Carroll Lynch uh, David Dellinger uh, best JCL performance since Zodiac perhaps yeah and uh, of course Drew Carey show uh, we all know this <laughs> I, I love this man's whole career and I'm really excited for him I just wish he didn't have you know 20 other actors to go toe to toe with like if this was in a, his own movie like he right. would and for, for another 20 scenes he would be uh, he would be all over the Academy's radar at least Agree. knocking on the door uh, Jeremy Strong from Succession He's fresh off his Emmy win. To me, his performance is comic relief. And to me, this is going to add to his star power, to the fact that he should be cast in every other movie for the rest of the of time. Yeah, I'm surprised that's the succession guy. You know, yeah. <laughs> like he plays a great hippie. 
<laughs> he was he was a lot of fun in this. Joseph Gordon Levitt, he's the Republican with a heart of gold in this movie. Dude, his character infuriated me. I mean, the way his character is written makes no fucking sense. What he does battling in the courtroom the way he does and then what he does in the final scene of the movie i was oh what do you does the guy just not have a a mind that he thinks about any of his actions he just goes with the flow in every moment he's the character where sorkin is overtly reaching across the aisle and my god yeah i agree with you on this other side of that coin you have frank langella who i just hated in this movie and i've rarely hated a Frank Langella performance as much as this one. Judge Julius Hoffman, he is a bug-eyed tyrant of the kangaroo court, chewing scenery in every single moment that he's on Mm. screen. I don't want Vince McMahon playing a judge (laughs) and a Best Picture winner. I, I mean, I don't know what he's doing here, but this is like underneath the mask when he was Skeletor in that He-Man film. What the hell? The way... This courtroom is run. I, I've seen, I mean, a lot of the judges I've worked with are very, very good at their job. But I've seen, having been in various courthouses, judges that um, may, maybe are less good at their job. Um, this is a fucking comic book character of an actual judge. Yeah. This is not a person that would be wearing the robe. It's a Saturday morning cartoon. It's yeah. absurd. And maybe he said some of these things from the transcripts. You're going to get into it in a minute when we go into spoilers or 10 minutes. But yeah, I, I just, I think that almost ruined the movie for me. How bad it did in a couple, yeah, in a couple moments. I absolutely agree. Otherwise, we got some great role players. Like there are some assist men in this movie. You have Kelvin Harrison Jr. as Fred Hampton. You have John Doman as Judge John Mitchell. He'll come show up later in All the President's Men. I mean, mm-hmm. we have Michael Keaton, of course. I don't want to give anything away there. But I love co-counsel, Attorney Wineglass, Ben Shankman. Yeah. I loved uh, Lee Weiner. He was kind of funny as one of the Chicago 7, but one mm-hmm. of the underappreciated ones. Noah Robbins played him. I think there's a lot of reason to vote this as a best ensemble this year, and it's going to be hard to beat in my eyes because of the number of good, the quantity of quality performances, I guess. Well, best ensemble usually flirts with best picture and as does a best editing at the Oscars, a best editing nomination or being taken seriously as a contender. So it, it kind of comes down to, for me anyway, with those types of categories, uh, whether at the SAGs or at the Oscars themselves, is this going to be treated as a best picture contender by the Academy? Yeah, I, I, I'll give I'll tee. I don't see it for me for the Academy of Mike one. I don't see this movie in that way. I can see the Academy feeling that way about this. That's where I land at the end of the day. Like, this feels like what they voted for in the past. Right. I don't know where I would rank it. I'd probably rank it kind of around where Ford v. Ferrari was last year for me. Uh, And I'll get into more of that. But I do think this is kind of the old Hollywood pick in many ways. I Mm -hmm. I think Andrew and Colby did a great job in their review. Guys, go listen to that. They get, you know, they tackle things more thoroughly in terms of the scene by scene uh, than we will today, even though we're going to get into that in a minute. But uh, I loved how, you know, Andrew called this a Capra-esque film in many ways and it definitely fits and i think i think old hollywood and if there is still that old guard in the academy that matters 
they're going to look at a movie like this and and just like stand up and cheer no no question but i i'm fascinated to see what happens as more people because if this is going to be a best picture contender it's going to have to gain momentum right out of the gate right and the more momentum it gains the more scrutiny it's going to be put under once the scrutiny hits this movie i'm going to be wildly interested to see what happens and where the polarization comes in and who's saying what about it and if it can last the scrutiny because this can either be one of the old academy old academy oscar like picks like you're talking about i could also see the new academy the newer members and and film twitter at large and the criticism game who's a lot of uh, more diverse and younger people tearing this apart quite frankly and if this is it that statement best picture they should i mean because mm. you you know all things being equal or being similar I still think the subject matter should be a detriment at the end of the day because the Vietnam War protests back in the 1960s, late 60s, early 70s were so different than what we're dealing with today. And the implications or the commiserations that the Academy wants to make, even if well-intentioned, it is a double-edged sword, especially right. with the self-criticism and the you know critique of progressive politics that you have in this movie. We're going to get into it. Uh, I did want to just dive right into the Oscar lens with production values. Maybe let's talk about the undercard here, Michael. Cinematography. We have some trademark shots, walking into the courthouse, the knights in question, anything of the flashback, anything of the protests that turn violent. The master shots are gorgeous. Faye Don, Papa Michael, Oscar nominee for Nebraska is the DP here. What did you think of the cinematography? I thought it was spectacular. I mean, especially in handling the flashbacks and some of the scenery that they find. Again, the the scout locations do an excellent job here. Uh, it's very cinematic. I mean, this this clash between protesters and police is kind of set up like the meeting of Bunker Hill or some shit. The way it's shot, so uh, great job in the cinematography. I, again, I don't know that I got Oscar feeling and Oscar tinglies from it, but right. I can see if it lands there sure i have it rated at the bottom of my list of possibilities but i did love it as well i just i have it at six right now on my Mm -hmm. list in cinematography i got a bunch that we've seen thus far this year some from netflix that are just over it unfortunately i got something like emma that i don't think would be nominated over this right but a lot of people have it in their fives thus far so we got to mention it like like we got to mention all of these original song we have the uh the song hear my voice from celeste over the credits michael and this category is scorched earth right now especially after the exodus of no time to die and billy eilish there so this is a pleasant song with a great message so it has a chance correct i i wouldn't put it in my five but i I think it has a chance if you asked me to say one word that i'm sure was in that song right now i wouldn't be able to give you anything so it left no impression on me (laughs) it it really does yeah it, it felt like the the one of the songs at the end of uh Law and Order episode or something. Do they have? Sure, you're they right. Have a, it felt like a TV movie <laughs> final song, and I don't, I don't like songs like that. But it's very pleasant, and I've seen yeah, right. songs like that, right. that get nominated a hundred thousand times at the Academy. Mm-hmm. And if, if a song with a gorgeous message, sung by a beautiful voice in Celeste, gets nominated, neither one of us will be surprised. Again, no. it's in a lot of top fives out there. Right. The score is in some pundit lists. I did remember some moments of the score in this movie. I think it, it really worked with the action scenes. It worked in the slowdowns. Nice job with the montages, like I said. So the score is a factor. 
Score was really a factor, especially in the in the third act and going back and forth, and that's where the editing I think was highlighted best too. You really do notice that, uh, and I can see the case being made. I can see the case. I mean, yeah, based on what we know about the Academy, you're absolutely right when you say this is the type of film historically that should be in contention for a lot of those categories, and I think it would be until you start thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Until you start thinking about it. But look, I mean, the production design, the costume design, the makeup and hairstyling, they got to be in our top fives at the yep. moment because of the authenticity, because of how convincing it all was. Because every hairdo looked like real hair. And if it wasn't, then they totally fooled me. Right. Production design looked like 1960s Chicago. They did this on a lower budget or a mid-tier budget. So that's a phenomenal job by everybody involved. Agree. I don't think you had a lot of hallmarks to suggest it was Chicago to, to have a criticism about it. Like you just you're you're in a field with a large hill. You're by a bar that's supposed to be the downtown Hilton. You don't really see any of the convention center itself. So you don't really have any you know, the Sears Tower. I don't think is even shown. You know you don't have any. I mean, there's not even a deep dish yeah. pizza on screen. Well, all right. You know? <laughs> Look, I would agree with you. All all enhancements. If you gave me the tourist uh, tour of Chicago, I don't know how. People recognize. I've been to Chicago one weekend in my life. So, do people recognize some of the uh, landmarks? I don't know. You right. Don't know. I mean, they could be, and I could have missed them. Sure. The sound mix. I am shocked to have noticed the sound mix, but with all the chanting and yelling and hippies and concerts and montage and Sorkin dialogue, I thought they did a beautiful job with the sound design in this one. It's very easy on the years mm-hmm. when this could be the honeyland of political films. <laughs> and it's, it's, I mean, it's very easy watching, easy listening. Well, especially with such a chaotic courtroom too, to have that not, you know, raise your anxiety level at all. It is really a great job. I would say sound mixing or sound design as it is now is probably one of the highest I am on this movie. And one of the least begrudged, I would see this end up nominated in. Right. And that's how I kind of power ranked it going from the earlier part of this conversation till now mm-hmm. cinematography song score the three designs and then well really the four designs sound design being the, the having the best chance that's i know some pundits have cinematography higher than me but that's kind of how, how i look at the undercard i think you're with me there so let's mm-hmm. take one more glance back at the main card because we both think at the end of the day this is going to be five six seven nominations at the very yeah. least it's getting nominated for best picture correct Well, here's what I'll say. On its face, sure, in this year, sure. The caveat I would pitch is if this faces any kind of controversy or or intense scrutiny that it can't survive, Netflix has so many other options they could just go to and put their resources behind that it wouldn't surprise me, if, or even if they wanted to keep Mank and this separate. I could see Netflix playing games with this, and that's kind of the risk you run in this type of year where they're really the only studio putting out Oscar caliber stuff on a consistent level. They're going to have multiple films to pick through. So, yeah, on its face, I think angrily as much as it upsets me it's going to be contending for best picture but that doesn't mean i can't see something happening where netflix just throws their hands up and says screw it let's go let's put more resources in the bank let's put resources into hillbilly elegy etc etc so my main concession to the audiences after our freak out our epic freak out a couple weeks ago is that if you're just talking about definitions of terms and you're making this your best picture front runner should I really disagree with you, just again, based on the definition of the term, I have it in my top tier as of now. So to, mm-hmm. to walk that 
conversation back. I understand why pundits are putting this in that pole position. All that being said, in terms of sheer grades, and I think we're both going to go into this in spoilers, this movie is not on the level of movies that have been in my top tens, my top fives over the last few years. And I think that's a reason for frustration because that happens for us often. It happened for us with The Shape of Water and Green Book as well in two out of the three years. It happened for you with Parasite. For me, I did have that as a top-tier film. But again, you know, this could be four for four for you. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I mean, I can absolutely see it, Mike. You're absolutely right. Like, there's, there's... a bunch of hallmarks, which is the word I think I already use, which is ironic since I'm not talking about the Lifetime type movies. But anyway, mm-hmm. there's a bunch of hallmarks this movie has that recently the Academy has used as like a checklist for a best picture. So yeah. sure, I can absolutely see it. Anyway, to get to the other two or three categories where this movie is a front runner, I think is original screenplay. It might be the front runner to win as of this moment. Uh, at I can least see it. the original side of yep. things. Film editing, I think it's a major contender. Alan Baumgardner from American Hustle. I mean, Mike, we don't really have any war films other than Defy Bloods. Uh, We don't really have any uh, car racing films. We we don't have musical biopics till later. Are we still going to get respect just in general in that movie? Mike, do we have another movie that's going to be obviously knock this one out in film editing? Editing for me is this movie's best category. Yeah. Like one for one, side to side. Uh, And again, when you're talking about editing historically, you have to be talking about Best Picture nominees. So I think it all kind of goes together. But if if the Academy of Mike One was ruling on this, sound design and editing are the two strongest, I feel. And editing in any Sorkin film, whether he's just writing or writing, directing as he is in this, it has. It's almost like a cheat code using Aaron Sorkin because the, his dialogue is so snappy. The editing has to come together to keep it all flowing nicely, mm-hmm. and it does, and it's immaculate. And because of that, I think it should be a contender in that category, regardless of whether or not it rises to best picture level. Now, I'm with you, are you are you putting it in your best screenplay five, or do you have issues with the subject matter and the screenplay that you're going to get into in a minute? Yeah, I can't. I can't put it in my best screenplay. Look, two-thirds of this movie for me is like a B minus C plus. And the last third is probably a solid A. Mm -hmm. Um, That's, I can't, if if two-thirds of the movie for me is below a B-level grade, I, I, I can't say it's one of the top five of the year now it's a it's a down year maybe we're gonna have some more films that flop hard and and don't make the categories i expect this not to finish in my top five we'll see if it actually does or not but i would be surprised if it does to be honest because when i watch this movie i don't know too much like you know too much like you've been in right. a courtroom every day of your life you you know too much literally yeah so i don't necessarily watch this movie and even though i say come on That couldn't have really happened, could it? I say that like three or four times at a few different things, but I probably miss a lot of that stuff that you're going to have to explain to me when we hit spoilers in a minute. So I can't see this movie, you know, being excluded from original screenplay. So that's where I am as a pundit. You're probably right. I mean, and Sorkin's got the pedigree, yeah. Yeah, you probably admit that as well. All right, so as a pundit, you're saying it's in, but in your five, it's not in. Uh, Right. So I guess the final question is, if we're adding everything together over the last two segments... It's probably a minimum of six or seven nominations because we're probably getting two actors, at the very least one mm-hmm. actor. 
We're getting film editing and sound design and screenplay and picture. And a question is, do we get director or do we get two actors? Do we get one of the designs? I'm guessing we get one of the designs, the other designs. So I would imagine so, yeah. Probably a seven or eight nomination movie, no matter what happens. Oh, God. <laughs> Right? I mean, they just... <laughs> yeah, no, up. you're right. I mean, hey, look, you're, you're you're just stating facts or stating what it seems like and the reality of the situation is. Yeah, and that's... Uh, it's it's going to sour take, taste in my mouth. It's going to take a backlash for this movie not to be yep. at the top of all the list because of, you know, the, the quality work that is done here. But, all right, let's break it down. Let's break it down in spoilers. Spoilers ahead! This is a spoiler warning. Spoilers. Spoiler section for the Trial of the Chicago 7, brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. If you have not seen the movie yet, this is a good place for you to hit pause. Go check it out on Netflix as it is out today on the 16th of October. Come back. We'll be waiting for you when you hit play on us. If you've seen the movie already, if you're just curious to hear our thoughts, this is where you want to be. All spoilers all the time. We're going to dissect the plot of the Trial of the Chicago 7, brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar, and an Oscar sprint profile. Michael, um, this movie is has a ridiculous way of going about a lawsuit in a courtroom. Yeah, so I'm a layman, and like I just said in non-spoilers, I don't understand how ridiculous this movie can get, but I think if we're being serious for a minute, my guess at what you're going to explain to us is Mm -hmm. this, and I think you kind of affirmed this in our pre-show. Yes, a lot of these words were taken verbatim from the transcripts, but when you compose the scenes... And you composite a lot of the words, and it's taken out of context and smushed together to make this a well-flowing movie as well as it flows. You have to call bullshit a hundred times because this is not how the proceedings go, correct? I can't imagine anyone who's ever taken a 1L Civ Pro or Civil Procedure class in law school Ugh. not wanting to, like, scream at the TV. It took me four hours to get through this movie, Mike, yeah. because there were so many things that I was like, am I fucking crazy or is that not allowed? I literally had to ask three or four other attorney friends of mine, just like, hey, this is random and stupid, and I know it would never happen, but this is, like, the law, right? Mm-hmm. And it, so it literally took me four hours to get through that. And Starting at the end, okay, I don't know what the hell Aaron Sorkin thinks sentencing is, but it's not whatever was shown in this movie. Really? <laughs> like, we don't get that these guys were found guilty until the title card at the end of the movie, and it's a nice, poignant, poetic moment, and it's cool. It, it's very you, you feel good about it. And Eddie Redmayne takes his stand. I'm not talking about it as a movie. Procedurally, Frank Langella gives this big speech to Eddie Redmayne, saying, "If you if you are short, or if you're brief and respectful, I'll look kindly on you on sentencing. Sentencing doesn't happen until after the jury's read the verdict. Yeah, and it's usually on a separate date. I, I guess the implication is since they were all in prison jumpsuits, they had already been given the guilty verdict, but we don't see that, and it's certainly not 
what's shown to us in the film chronologically. So that just made no sense to me that Eddie Redman was taking this big stand after already being found guilty, except he wasn't found guilty yet because we didn't see that. That made no sense to me. Another thing that made no sense to me in that sequence, the judge is openly bargaining for the defendant's sentence, which would never happen. And it's just a gigantic violation of ethics and, and courtroom procedure and he would be grieved by everybody in the courtroom, including probably those in the gallery. It's just, it's it's so bizarre. And Sorkin has to know this. The thing I would do, and I'm going to talk about this and touch on this in a little bit, but the thing I would do that Kunstler eventually does do at one point, you have to get a transcript. You can just get your shit on the record and every day go to the reporter and get a transcript because his violations are cartoonish. I'll give you more examples. The most egregious part of, and I've said egregious a lot, but this is, I I feel very outraged about this. This trial, I don't care what transcripts this trial was taken from. Mm -hmm. Day three, when Bobby Seale, Yaya Abdul-Mateen's character, says, hey, my lawyer's not here. My lawyer got rushed into emergency surgery. Mm -hmm. Here's what happens in reality to that. If you have two defendants, let's say, instead of seven or eight, Defendant A's lawyer has to be rushed into emergency surgery. Defendant's B lawyer is going to file a continuance saying that, hey, this guy doesn't have representation. Uh, Nobody from his law firm can show up. Whatever the reason, we have to set the trial for a different date. That motion's going to be granted 100 times out of 100. If it's not granted, if that motion's rejected, if the judge does let the case go forward, everybody in that courthouse is going to double and triple check with that judge to see if he's taking crazy pills. And if the case does go forward and the judge insists on Bobby Seale not being able to self-represent or file an appearance or cross-examine his own witnesses... If this trial is what it says it has, it was in the movie, if this is the whole world is watching, there's protests and media on the courtroom steps and in the courthouse itself covering this. This is the biggest trial uh, that's going on. It's all over the news right now. Mm -hmm. There's no way you get to day four of this trial after the judge treats Bobby Seale the way he did in day three. The courtroom personnel wouldn't allow it. The The court district wouldn't allow it. The judge would be grieved immediately. The media would be a firestorm. Like, this trial doesn't go four days, much less 130 under these circumstances. It was so unrealistic and so far afield that it's just impossible to to take seriously. So I did some cursory research, watched some YouTube videos, read a bunch of Wikipedia pages, and it did seem like there was more gray area involved. Again, I don't want to mischaracterize the events, but essentially the uh, Kunstler character had represented Bobby Seale in a lot of the pretrial stuff and there was all this argument that that qualified him as as the attorney of record or whatever for Bobby Seal. I, I I don't again, I don't know how to parse through that, but there was I mean more it's, gray being area. being a representative being a representative is very black and white. You have to file an appearance. If you filed an appearance for the trial, you are the guy's lawyer. If you didn't, which it very much seems like Kunstler didn't in this case because Bobby Seal was so resistant to having him represent him yeah. for this trial in the first place, th- there's no issue. And Kunstler, any any lawyer would have read the judge the riot act, probably to the point where he would have been held in contempt himself, or he would have just walked out of the courtroom because it's a miscarriage. It's a gross miscarriage of justice. Well, I mean, Kunstler would have gone out of the courtroom and gone right to the media and complained about this lawyer, and the media would have gone bananas. 
he was held in contempt of court to a, a, a ridiculous amount. Uh, right, he was. I mean, he, he, was he was, but it wasn't for that particular reason. I mean, he did that once or twice, I think. This would have—you don't get to 130. It wouldn't have made 130 days. Everybody would have ended up in a holding cell. The way they summarized it, it was the way that—the reason why it's unrealistic. Is that correct? Even with the black and white nature of the attorney uh, attachment or whatever. Yeah, I, I, procedurally, I don't care about the trans. What happened? In this movie, I know it's a movie and it's not a historical document. I get that. And it's for entertainment purposes. But what happened in this movie, could it's impossible to happen. It's just impossible. The antagonism is more insidious than what they showed in this movie. That's the unfortunate thing. And the fact of the matter is that the public doesn't get to the bottom of how insidious the, the, this political trial really was. And as, and as a movie, Mike, that's yeah. what that's what made the like as my lawyer self was going crazy about the procedural stuff. My film critic stuff was going crazy for that reason. Like, in a way, Sorkin made the the protagonism antagonism so bright lined in this mm-hmm. that it's an idyllic uh, life. It's an idyllic world he lives in because civil rights issues, as much as we think when we're on one side of it. They should be black and white. They are usually the grayest of gray areas. And they're the grayest of gray areas because of the insidious nature of the people who are trying to prohibit or or limit or oppress a group and their rights, right? If this judge actually existed and was so ridiculously cartoonishly racist and bigoted and biased against the Bobby Seals and the Chicago 7 in general of the world, it would almost be a relief to people like you and me because it would be so obvious as to which side people should be rooting for and should fall on and if you were on the judge's side somebody that cartoonishly evil then you're obviously not a good person but because like you said there is the insidiousness in real life that's full of deceit and double talk and 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 just this really evil when you get down to it it makes it that much more unrealistic and it did take me out of the movie as a critic I completely agree, and it, it took me, it took me out of the movie in the sense that I feel like he's underestimating his audience, Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, or he doesn't understand it himself, but I'm guessing he does, and he's you know underestimating his audience, and he's, he's he's really he's not giving enough dimensions to the antagonism, like you're saying. I mean, there, right. the orchestration of their arguments are so thorough. They're so, you know, subtle, and it's it's just not this big bug-eyed. I'm gonna say this racist thing now, and you're gonna have to deal with it because I'm the judge, and you can't do anything about it. Like that can't be true. The judge not allowing Michael Keaton's examination, it like, if he really For those was reasons, right, exactly. Like he would have let the he would have let it in, and he would have like you would have toyed with it. Like there's a there's a way to be nefarious about it without being so blatant, which unfortunately is what a, a lot of our politics has become yeah. in America. Uh, and that's yeah, it just it was so comic booky. That being said, you know Bobby Seale really was bound and gagged for three yes, days, I which believe, is in that court, reprehensible, which is medieval. 
and it's yes. a nightmare. So I get why Aaron Sorkin is compositing, you know, a, a various things to make it clear for the audience about how wrong. But there's a lot of nuance lost in the translation. Exactly. And, and therefore, the opposite side is just given, you know, devil horns. And, and it's it's not to say that they're not evil, but they're they're much smarter in their. Exactly. They they have tact. The right. question for me is. What do you think Sorkin saw this movie as? Was this a challenge for him? Or like like was was he saying all these red flags about the way to treat the Bobby Seal storyline and basically relegate it to a subplot about the cartoonish evil or about the the, the blatant nefariousm that was going on? Was this a challenge for Sorkin that he saw all these and said, well, I, I really want to test myself as a filmmaker? Or does he seriously not think these things are that big of a deal? So I think Aaron Sorkin has seen a civil rights subplot in a lot of Hollywood movies before. He's seen a Holocaust subplot in a lot of Hollywood movies before. We've seen subplots about extremely important things, things that I would say are more important than the A plot. He's seen the he's seen those relegated before. And right. you know, again, I wonder if this is his arguing away of our obvious objection with the way he handles this because he's just he's he's admitting that he's not capable of characterizing that story but if he tells it from the you know the white hippie perspective then he can handle that but he is going to pay homage he is going to give his respects to what is the more important storyline or what is the more the higher stakes more life and death storyline and and that's both the civil rights struggle and the the war in vietnam which is what this movie's about if this movie was not about the war in vietnam if it was about i don't know anything else Mm -hmm. then how how do you power rank those things or how do you how does this movie work at all right so if it's just about civil disobedience then I don't think it works at all. So the, the, because it's about life and death on these other, uh, as a backdrop, and then as a subplot, all right, I, I feel like he is thinking that he's paying enough respect. I am curious to know his motivation. Is this film, is making this film worth it? Is it worth the scrutiny that could come as a result? And obviously he thinks it is. I mean, he made the film and I'm not saying he was being, you know, deceitful or evil. I mean, I would just like to know, was this a story that he felt he needed to tell or is this a movie he wanted to make? You know what I mean? For 10 years, he tried to tell this story. Will Smith was cast in the Bobby Seale role. So this was going to be a featured performance no matter what. Back in the day, Heath Ledger was supposed to be Eddie Redmayne. Steven Spielberg was supposed to direct it, I believe. Uh, So bottom line is, I think, I'm trying not to say bottom line as much as I used to. Is that my first bottom line today? <laughs> I, think it is. I think it is. I hope. But I think you're good. <laughs> I do think it is a bottom line. He gives Bobby Seale the line of the movie and the tell-off scene of the movie. Tom Hayden is in that, and Mark Rylance, uh, William Kunstler. They're, it was a terrible name, by the way. They're in that <laughs> cell or in that waiting room there, and they're talking to uh, Bobby Seale after Fred Hampton is murdered and Fred and Bobby seal goes to them. He's like, basically you have daddy issues, mm-hmm. but that's much different than a rope on a tree. Right. Which a is an unbelievable. World. I mean, it's, it's such a powerful, powerful moment too. 
So I see everybody nodding along with that scene. It's a beautiful scene. I, you know, he should have ended the movie with that instead of the fade to black right. law and order right. nonsense right. that he, you know, gave away in the goddamn trailer, which we'll go over in a minute with Sasha Baron Cohen's line. So I, I just don't understand. I don't understand uh, how critics could come through a movie like this, however well paced it is and however polished it is, and and not walk away saying, all right. Judas and the Black Messiah is way more of an important story. Maybe right. we should pay a little deference to right. that movie and not just put this one in the in the status that it's at. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think you make a good point, and I'm just thinking in my head, if they did just flip those scenes, I mean, you're dealing with flashbacks all throughout the movie anyway. If you have that as a flashback to end the movie, how much more powerful the message would have been, right? Because, I mean, it does kind of get... I mean, I'll be honest. I, I remember, obviously, being in the moment and seeing it, and it was powerful, but it's in the first part of the movie. You kind of just get lost in the shuffle when you're trying to establish characters and or figure out the plot of what's going on still. So, yeah, I, I, maybe it was just a, for all the good the editing did. Maybe that was a misstep in it. Well, in terms of the movie, though, it, it's a parallel to the final scene that we do get because it is, you know, we usually talk about the ending at this point. So here it is. I mean, at the at the final scene, we have him reading all the names that have died since they started the trial in Vietnam. And those are the only the American soldier names. Never right. mind the, you know, how many Vietnamese people died. So obviously they're trying to pay their respects and, and that's the point, and that's what these men are willing to die for, what they were willing to die for, despite their political differences and their egos and all the flaws that they had and how they misspoke or how they got angry and they did incite violence in this movie. I mean, that, that is true. It's what yeah. happened, and it, Sorkin shows it to be the truth. He shows the cross-examination of Sasha Baron Cohen to be ultimately a failure. Because right. he fades to black, and then bam, they're guilty, and bam, they're getting sentenced, or you're in the sentencing hearing. He show, I mean, he shows that Tom Hayden made the mistake. He made the mistake of leaving out the uh, the pronoun "our blood." I mean, yeah. he was trying to give a speech about martyrdom, but ultimately right. he riled up the crowd to fight the police. And that's, I mean, there's there's peak Sorkinism in this movie. Like there, there, the last three scenes are maybe the best I've seen from Aaron Sorkin. And it's culminated in a way by that confrontation between Eddie Redmayne and Sasha Baron Cohen. uh, After Drew Carey guy gets arrested. (laughs) John Carlich. I'm in in a different part of the doc. I don't have his name in front of me. I apologize. (laughs) But yeah, after when, when they're deciding what to do and they want to, before Eddie Redmayne kind of recaps what exactly happened at the riot that he incited, there's the argument between Sasha Baron Cohen and Eddie Redmayne, which is really the the argument of the soul of political progress, right? Yeah. I mean, what works? Is it following form or making a scene? We're going to jail because of who we are, not because of what we've done. It's really a metaphysical confrontation of what the Democratic Party, for the most part, has been up against the last 50 years. And it's and also, it's, well, it's also self-criticism there. Right, exactly. I, I mean, it's really beautiful. There's all kinds of depth and layer and angst and anger about it. And it's, it is, it's self-deprecating. And it's, it's so peak Sorkin. That's, I mean, that last 40 minutes of the movie, you could say this about any movie he's in, but as soon as Michael Keaton comes on screen, <laughs> you have a double-digit Oscar-nominated film. The falling, failing of that is that it's only for the last 40 minutes. Well, the great thing about A Few Good Men is that 
McCaffrey or Caffrey is sticking his foot in his mouth for the first hour and 40 minutes. And in those last 10 minutes, he's finally piecing it all together after right. Demi Moore tells him off and he tells her off. And, oh, my God, he is an asshole for an hour and 40 minutes, and he's proven a hero in the last 10. And that kind of happens a little bit with Eddie Redmayne in this movie. But, again, not enough. They're tr- right. They're trying. Three. That's what he's trying to do, except it doesn't set itself up that way in the first 80. But I loved, I agree with you, I loved when Eddie Redmayne is humanized, when the man that would marry Jane Fonda and and Tom Hayden there, that guy would go on to be very important in terms Mm -hmm. of this struggle for for not only civil rights, but for for social justice, and and he would have a career as a politician the rest of his life. I mean, it's a very important origin story with Tom Hayden here. This character screws up in, in just the most humiliating way to him and his cause. And he's told off by the maid entering into Michael Keaton's. Why did yes. you stand when Bob, after what they did to Bobby? And he, and he's trying to laugh it off. And this, I, I just thought he, he, he should have been mortified and he, and he wasn't. And that's what he comes to grip with. Through, through, I, so I, I think that arc worked the best. And I do think it is, framed by the criticism the dueling criticisms going on against the hippie movement that you know Redmayne and and Hayden is is spewing towards Cohen and vice versa about why the hippie movement why he has to do all those quote-unquote necessarily evil and why he has to ham it up for the camera you know and do do what he does because they have no money they don't have the ability to get the attention otherwise and all of it's wrong in its own way and all of it's noble in its own way right but it is nuanced and, and that's sorkin at his best in this film i would agree yeah i mean that's and those are i know we're kind of doing best and worst in wide swaths here but that that was the peak of the movie for me you talked about the fading to black with sasha Cohen on screen or on the stand you know excuse me friend i've never been on trial for my thoughts before i was so aggravated by that well they just gave it away they stepped on that like if we hadn't heard that before i do think it might have worked better in terms of the end of the movie because you're you're he's he's not answering the question he's failing in that scene that's a failure scene this is a tragedy uh, that is, you know, given the silver lining at the end of the film. And in the title cards, you realize, oh, okay, this is how, you know, society corrected itself. The stand they made, even though it was a losing stand, did turn around at some point. Mm. But they're losing in this movie. And I, I, right. I, I get why they did what they did. I just I hate the fact that they showed it in the trailer. I, I, I remarked in the trailer, I was like, hey, that's a great line. <laughs> Right? I mean, yeah, and it makes even – it's not even something I thought of, Mike, and you said it here, and I can't stop thinking about it. It it underscores that that Bobby Seal scene should have been at the end like because you didn't give that away already. You didn't see that, and that's the point of the whole fucking movie. It's the point of the whole movie, and it, and it, and it echoes – the, the final uh, reading of the names. But I get I see structurally, and right. Sorkin's done it in right. his master class. He's taught as much. Structurally, you're supposed to put it at the four-sixth mark, two-thirds I, mark. But left. see, if you're taking so much poetic license with the events as you are anyway, yeah, yeah. why not just have that outburst by Eddie Redmayne come in the middle, you know, before the fucking verdict is read, before you're found guilty, before the guys are in their jumpsuits. Just have him do it in the middle of the fucking trial on day 150, whatever. Then you can go right to a flashback in Bobby Seal, and then you could have the title card saying they were found guilty. I mean, 
Boy, I don't know. I mean, it's a str- it's a structural mess, and I do think he jumps the timeline like crazy in this movie. He does. And, that's what and that's he makes my point. it work, and so that's why I think original screenplay is gonna happen because of how much he manipulated things and how usually it worked for him. But I would agree thematically, it's it's a it's a yeah, it's aggravating as all hell. But I guess do you want to finish our best scenes? Because I got I can kind of list them off in a way. Uh, yeah, yeah, you you take the lead here cuz I mean my best was the that confrontation the first 725 is just outstanding like I said in the non-spoiler section. I it's really I mean there's stuff there's stuff Sorkin does here that is as good as he has ever been in his entire career. And that's really what you can say about all my best. So what else do you have? So after the first scene of the trial, which is a worst scene for me, no question about it. I just think leading up to the shtick of all the the jokes. I know it really happened. I know it didn't happen in that rhythm. Give me a break. There's right. no way. So after that scene, they regroup in the office. I thought that was wonderful. Again, peak Sorkin. Are we defending ourselves from, from some very serious charges? Or are we going to say a pointless fuck you to the establishment? And then Ruben's like, fuck you. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah, love that. Then there's the back and forth about the haircut where Sasha Baron Cohen is breaking Eddie Redmayne's balls. I love that. The, the very thing, the very last thing he wants is to end the war. That comes back later on mm-hmm. uh, in the big argument. That's another one of my best scenes, like, like we said. But ignoring that reality is just weird to me and i don't know what voice that is is that a boston accent i meant to say i this think earlier. it was boston i think he was going for boston there yeah and that's a kind of, well I, I don't know it's kind of a failure at least in an overt boston accent because I, I i've watched the movie three times i don't know what accent well he said going. he went to brandeis right isn't brandeis? that a uh, yeah that's a waltham massachusetts uh, university funny line when he said i went to brandeis i could do both <laughs> i could do both Again, yeah. this movie had a lot of comedy in here it but did it, i mean it's so it's so good the script is very good but it's so fucking aggravating and even i I mean, you brought up the point, and this is another thing, talking about Brightline and good, comically good versus comically evil. Everything Sasha Baron Cohen says and everything uh, Jeremy Strong does aside him, everybody eats it up. Laughter everywhere. There's no gray yeah. area. It doesn't matter that they're being inappropriate. The gallery is fucking clapping and wooting. Like, like come on. There'd be fucking nuance, man. Yeah, he's doing a Lenny Bruce routine, and it's working. I know! Everybody's fucking... I'm surprised he didn't get a standing ovation when he took his robe off and showed the police outfit. Right. I mean, again, it really happened, but it didn't happen with the crescendo that it happens in this movie. And I guess that's the reason why it's movieized, or it's, you know, cinematized, or... This is how you know these guys are right, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's really set up... in the perfect way but i love all the stuff about a political trial i think that really you know landed throughout the movie it's brought up throughout the movie and it's not only a rylance thing it's a it's a tom hayden thing it's you know it's a red main thing with sasha baron cohen where he gets to be right at the end even though he's still wrong mm-hmm. i thought there was a lot of nuance like i said michael keaton's scene i wanted to mention one more thing like the judge literally says sustained without getting an objection and then you have Ryland saying no one objected and then mm-hmm. you have uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt say we we do your honor yeah. I just thought that's that's brilliant and if that really happened I, I you know bravo to that <laughs> it aggravated the shit out of me <laughs> it had to but he's a real lawyer anyway the uh, the mock trial sequence with the flashbacks to the red main scene we mentioned that just some of his best work ever yep. I loved 
earlier in the film when Abby and Jerry walk into the court. Like that that's a best picture scene. Jerry catches the egg and then he doesn't know what to do with the egg. <laughs> that was funny. You're absolutely right. You think I want to? <laughs> Every best picture has a scene like that where you just you are in love with these characters. You want to hang out with these characters. Their movie stars forever after that scene, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh that scene on top of when Kunchler finally loses it, which only takes until day, you know, 7,300 and whatever, uh, when he has Keaton on the stand yeah, and he finally realizes the jig is up, there's no way he can win the trial. You know, Frank Langella is that ridiculous of a judge and that evil, comic book machinations aside. The first thing I thought of was just say what you got to say to get the shit on the record. And he finally does that. Sorkin actually included that in. So I, I do tip my cap. The guy actually was trying to, and Sorkin's dealt with courtrooms before. He knows what, what works and how it goes. That, that goes towards what makes my aggravation with him even more so. But Kunchler actually says that. He talks to the reporter. He's like, fuck this judge. He's not going to give me the time of day. Hey, are you good? Can you keep up with me? And he knows Keaton's on his side. So he's just going to get everything out there and on the record. That was really cool. That was a really good moment. And that was, you know, his own protest in his own way, Kunchler there, even though he's trying to stay within the realms of the system. I'm with you. I think the Rylance character is a little underrated at this moment. And I do uh, I do hope so good that uh, his last name aside, he gets uh, some more credit. <laughs> <laughs> That's a terrible last name. Why wouldn't you change it? It's bad. It's not good. Well, I guess if you're going to be an attorney, right, you can at least be Kunchler the counselor. So that, I mean, that's got a ring to it. <laughs> William Testicler. <laughs> it's, it doesn't get much better. I, I can't find a worse word. Anyway, Mike, I think uh, I loved the three-part shaming of Tom Hayden in the reaction scenes. I mean, it happens in the moment when he stands up for the judge and nobody else does. And then when he's at the... I mean, everything at their little home base there in Chicago, the conspiracy office, loved everything that happened yeah. there. And yeah. then finally, you have him with the maid. I mean, it's a hell of a confrontation where he's putting his foot in his mouth continuously, and then he gets a little redemption, and he learns his lesson at the end. And I, I love that. And he gets the Mary Jane Fonda, so good for Pat <laughs> Hate in uh, there. Tom Pat hate Tom Hayden. Tom Hayden. Mike, I have a similar situation with worse scenes. Do you have any more best before we head there? Uh, I think I've screamed a lot about best and worst, so I'll go along for the ride with what you got here, buddy, and I'll pepper in. What do you All got? All right. So Colby and Andrew did a wonderful job ranting on this particular scene, and I couldn't agree more. Sorkin completely hid the ball regarding the smoking gun of the recording of Tom Hayden screaming, "Let if blood is going to flow, let it flow. There's no way that they prep this trial for months and they don't remember the big speech Tom Hayden gave to the entire group right before the worst of the beatings by the police and the worst of the confrontations with the police, the night of horrors. Yeah. There's no way they don't remember that when, and Tom, and Hayden doesn't remember that till the very end of the trial. That's absurd. That would be the thing they had to defend most from the very beginning. And it, I, this is the thing that even I, as a layman, I'm like, bullshit. Of course, this is, this is what you have to figure out the most on how to defend. You, this is not something that pops up at the end. Were of the any trial. were any of the of the undercover detectives at that rally? They didn't show us any, right? I don't remember, but it's the last thing he says to the crowd before the bloodiest fight. Give me a break! You right. don't remember uh, that that was said? Yeah, I I tell you, I thought 
I gave that a lot of deference. Um, you're right in that they probably would have discovered that either way, but one, the Justice Department wasn't going to put a billion hippies on the stand to say that that actually happened. You know, they weren't going to put a billion protesters on the stand to say that those words were actually said at the protest. Two, he actually did an okay job, even though it's, you know, there's a lot of stuff you just got to kind of take for granted in this movie, and this is one of them, that somebody in the gallery just gave this recording, this pristine recording to the U.S. Justice Department on the last day. And if that happens, the Justice Department, it's not like they did it from Kunstler. They gave him a copy of the tape. And so, you know, it's a weak explanation, but it's le- at least it's an explanation. You're right. It's it's weak and it could be a worse. And I completely understand that. But I'm just telling you the conceit I gave it. On first glance, or even as I watch the movie, I'm glad at the way it flowed. But when you think about it, it's just like, come on, they didn't. Like, they would have had... Yeah, that, that probably would have been a bigger deal at trial. You're right, they would have had a month, you know, to debate that. Mm-hmm. And so it's absurd. Okay, the opening statement, I know, again, I know in the transcript, these guys are interrupting like crazy. Um, however, it doesn't get... You know, you don't have interruptions that lead to, like, the shtickiest shtick ever from Sasha Baron Cohen. It's, where a, he's fucking, like, it's a kangaroo court. It's it's absurd. Come on. You know, Dillinger's a criminal, Derringer's a gun, <laughs> and, <laughs> and the judge and I are not related. <laughs> boom, boom. You don't get that ever. Give yeah. me a break. Fuck no. you. Well, there's so many, there's so many things like that guy would be taken away in cuffs and put in a holding cell immediately, numerous times. Uh, 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 Just saying you can't write a joke that obvious and leave it in there. You have to disguise your joke more. Oh, you're mad at the content of the joke, not the outburst itself? Yeah, I'm mad at the <laughs> the level of joke writing that happened in that scene. Like, you can't sure. have an obviously structured joke there. Okay. I'll cut Aaron you Sorkin. <laughs> like, that was where it lost me. I Like, I was laughing at the egg thing. <laughs> that, that voice, I loved it. And, and, and even the interruptions were working for me. But then, but the judge and I are not related. And I could just see the crowd going, you know, nuts for that. It's, right. Give me a break. And, and the shit Langella, for a guy who's so clearly evil and biased, the shit that he does allow to go in his courtroom is, it doesn't make sense if he's that type of judge. And that's another thing that completely angered me. That type of, if, you, if you're that dead set that these guys are guilty before the trial even fucking begins, which I've maybe seen happen anyway, but doesn't matter anyway, uh, you're not going to let Sasha Barrett Cohen fucking have his Lenny Bruce stand-up routine throughout the entirety of the trial. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. Now, I hated the montage of all the undercover cops, even though I kind of, again, I like how the mom, it brings a lot of momentum. But we get that snide remark from Weiner. He's like, is it possible we had seven of us leading a crowd of 10,000 undercover cops? <laughs> again, not funny because you all get beaten within an inch of your lives. And a guy's being beaten in the courtroom, number one. But n- number two, it's just like... Rick and Morty has ruined the heist movie team up for me forever. And I just binged all of Rick and Morty. And that was the heist movie team up of this movie. You, Rick, you son of a bitch. (laughs) I I can't watch that. I can't take that movie convention seriously ever again because of Rick and Morty. Period. End of story. (laughs) So it has to be a worse scene, even though I kind of liked it. So Dan Harmon ruined Aaron Sorkin for you. (laughs) A hundred percent. In that scene, Sorkin, you just got to understand who's ruined movie conventions out there. And that happened for an entire generation. And I try to be 
at least aware of what that younger generation watches. And Rick and Morty is one of those shows that my younger brothers have forced <laughs> me to watch at this point. And I'm glad I did. I'm not trying to say that I'm cool because I watched it, but they will never take a heist movie seriously <laughs> or a team up montage seriously again. Period. Makes sense. <laughs> I can't really argue with that logic. Anyway, that's all I got for worst. I, it is, you can study this movie forever. Again, go listen to the Nomcast. I thought they did a great job, scene by scene, beat by beat. Uh, uh, you know, they paid more attention to that than we did. We kind of, in, in a very deliberate way, we tried it to frame this as an Oscars debate and what's going to happen with the backlash. Maybe speculating about that, Mike. But I think it's time for final thoughts, final grades here. Well, I have a theoretical question before I give my grade to you. Mm-hmm. Because we are so, fr- this is totally unfair to ask. Uh, and it's a guy that's a criminal uh, of his own, you know, greatness. But because Sorkin is so good yeah. at times, does that come into play with how off-putting it is that the antagonism and the protagonism, for that matter, because I still say Sasha Baron Cohen being beloved, doing what he does in the face of authority, would not be as well-received a hundred unanimously as it was. But anyway, does that put it under an even greater microscope? Like, are we even being more unfair because it is Aaron Sorkin doing this than if it was, you know, Tom C. Director doing it? He's built a career on giving his characters enough dimensions, but still being able to idealize them. Like, we have Martin Sheen's character from The West Wing being a superhero on this planet. And it's not the way a Tarantino does it. I think Tarantino, for instance, will show you a hundred more warts in his characters and his, that's, his characters right. are so contemptible that it's hard to have a superhero in a Tarantino movie. And he almost goes the opposite direction, which is why, you know, we as self-deprecating people kind of, you know, flock to those movies a little more. This one, you can accuse it of self-aggrandizing, even with the arguing away of obvious objections, even with some of the parsing through the, the self-criticism. It is, it's not balanced at the end of the day. So, yeah, when Aaron Sorkin is able to use the artistic license, this artistically, to essentially dumb down the plot and the real conflicts going on to make the other side look dumb, dumber than they actually are, I just think it ultimately it just underestimates them. Ultimately, it turns them against us. Because you're saying this is us and them, and I, I know this movie's coming out before the election. I just think ultimately it is a failure to understand and to draw the lines where they need to be drawn here. Because I, I, I get very aggravated with how Democrats underestimate Republicans. If they oh, yeah. were, th- oh yeah, it's just absurd to me. And, and yeah, I'm surrounded by Republicans, and I have family and friends who I love and who I think are great people who, who vote Republican at the end of the day. I just, I, I hate the fact that Democrats just demonize these people and demonize that ideology at the end of the day. When in fact, this movie is about Mayor Daley and LBJ and a democratic war and atrocities going on and a democratic uh, mayor who's, who's leading a police force and ordering a police force to fight these people and to ambush these people the same way it happened in Mangrove. I mean, this movie is very critical of Democrats and you walk away thinking, about Donald Trump at the end of the day. And again, I have my... Which is the point. Issues. I mean, look, yeah. if if Sorkin did this entire movie just so he could have Michael Keaton in a courtroom saying that the president is not the client of the attorney general, like, I get it. 
I understand it, and I kind of almost tipped my hat in the way he he did that to get that message out there with the backdrop of Democrats self-deprecating again, like he does throughout this entire movie. We've also made our politics clear throughout this podcast, and I don't have any love lost for Donald Trump or George W. Bush or Mitt Romney or the last few iterations of Republican politics either. But th- so don't you know? Don't accuse me of being a closet Republican here. At the same time, uh, but I I respect that ideology and and its pros, even though I kind of vote against it because of its cons and the fact that this movie gives some olive branches across the aisle they're really fake olive branches because it's it's very politicized they're trying to get you to vote and trying to get you to vote one way and they're trying to get you to to think especially in the marketing at the end of the day we love netflix for so many things they do the way they marketed this movie is aggravating to us still yeah that's for sure (laughs) amongst other things uh yeah Final grades. Let's just say a number and then just say bye. <laughs> I actually did a, uh, a an algebra uh, equation for my final grade because I thought, well, two-thirds of this movie is an 80, and then one-third is like a 94 or 95. Yeah. So I did that equation. I came up with an 84.69. Nice. That's 80. my grade. <laughs> you had to. You have to put more point six nines on the end of things. Cause that actually so... is how it came out. That was mathematic, not just me. Oh, my God. So that's an omen. Yeah. I don't know if it's a good omen. <laughs> uh, I was at an 89 B plus going into today, and I thought about bringing it down to an 88 B plus. I still think it's an 88, 89 B plus. It's a high B plus. I think at the end of the day, a lot, or at the end of every year, a lot of best pictures with that grade from me seem to win. So I do think this is a best picture contender just based on you know, the feelings I get uh, at the end of the day. But, uh, you know, I, I have my issues with it. I will be upset if this is the best we get on the year. It's not the best I've seen this year, but my pick is more controversial at the end of the day of a movie in this category. People don't want to hear me say Tenant is a better movie because they get confused by Tenant or they <laughs> don't like Tenant. They don't think that's best picture quality movie. I but anyway, I'll be honest with mutants. you. I, I recognize Tenet is not going to win Best Picture. I liked it more than this movie. They're in totally different worlds. It's like arguing that a Big Mac is the same thing as a, uh, you know, bottle of wine. I just, no, I like the Big Mac. I, I like the Big Mac. That's, that's where we'll end this episode. <laughs> I'm hungry. The Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Oscar sprint profile, the trial of the Chicago 7. I like the Big Mac. Well, instead of a, a three-point curve, you know, we have a, a 3.31 point curve this time. So yes. that, that's that's good. <laughs> but uh, as always, guys, we want to hear your thoughts about this movie, about its failings, about its comic book-like protagonism and antagonism, the best of Sorkin being Sorkin, the messaging that it has behind it. And frankly, what are your thoughts on Big Macs versus wine? Let us know all of that as well. You can leave us any other comments, questions, concerns about anything else we do here in the MMO Empire. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook and Instagram at MM and Oscar on Twitter. Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We are available everywhere you hear podcasts. If you happen to be listening to us on the Apple Podcasts app, if you would take five seconds out of your day to go on that app and leave us a five-star review, that would truly, truly make our entire days as well. Michael, what is coming next and what are some words of wisdom to end on here so we are watching movies at the middleburg film festival at the afi film festival and we are going to do non-spoiler reviews of minari and one night in miami the same way we did 
non-spoiler reviews for Nomadland and On the Rocks at the New York Film Festival. So that's exciting for us. At the end of the day, we understand that maybe folks don't want to hear those reviews too early, and they'll hear them later. But uh, I think we o- we leave that possibility open of a full OSP at the at, at, in the winter for those movies when they come out. So we'll see how you guys want to want us to deal with them. We also kind of tacked an Oscar race checkpoint news episode, trailer review episode, variety show onto our French exit review. So that may have to happen because we got Hillbilly Elegy trailers. That may have to happen with one of the next two, Mike. We really didn't talk about it yet. I don't know what we're going to do, but that is on the schedule. Then we have our Halloween stuff, the scaries. We have a James Bond character study. We got some fun stuff for the end of the month. We got some post film festival guest spots that are going to be fun. We got a big special for you guys at the beginning of November. In terms of wisdom, I don't really have anything. I, 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 I say I like the Big Mac. Let's just can I go with that? No, I can't really go. Well, with I that. got. I'll, I'll fill in. I'll call Please. in the lefty because uh, I do want to give you credit. You have been uh, killing yourself and working your ass off on our website, which is I, I've checked in. I have not done near the work on it. You have, which is to say, I've done barely anything, and you've been at it pretty much every day. So uh, all the credit and props in the world to you and your brother John for helping us out along the way. And I'm very excited for people to see it. And you're doing a great job, bud. So I just wanted that on the record. Uh, oh, wow. Wanted to give you a shout out there. You're doing awesome. Well, it is still there's a long way to go to finish it, but I right. think uh, I think it. I'm I'm really happy that Squarespace has that tool out for us, and it's coming out really really nice. And uh, we'll have a big catalog for you guys. I think we're gonna, you know, talk about the fun stuff, the, the what's really you know, come for the catalog, stay for the Oscar stuff, and we're gonna we're gonna have a lot of cool stuff on that website when we do launch. Free Big Macs for everybody. <laughs> Guys. Big Mac reviews. <laughs> when reality sucks, you can come watch the potential Oscar contenders and eat some McDonald's with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Trying to make award season year-round without the stuffiness. We will see you all very soon. See you.